All right, it took us nearly four years as a church to get through the book of Luke. And that story reaches its climax at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're wondering, whatever happened after that? Well, you're in luck because we're about to start studying a sequel called the book of Acts. In the first book written by Luke, he chronicled the story of Jesus. He recorded his teachings, his actions, and the biggest event in history, the death and resurrection of the Son of God. Now in the sequel book, he records for us what happened immediately after. Like literally, it picks up right where the first book ends. So let's begin by reading his intro, you know, the part that catches everybody up with the story so far. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Luke, he starts this book off the same way he began his first book, by dedicating his book to his sponsor, a guy that goes by the name Theophilus, which is probably a code name. It literally means God lover. So the author, Luke, he points out that Jesus died and that he rose again and he hung out with a bunch of people for 40 days. So the question is, what did he do during the 40 days? Well, he records for us that he did a crash course on what it all means, like what the death meant, what the resurrection meant, uh, what God's been up to, you know, all that jazz. So apparently they hung out and ate together and did a lot of things together. And then in the next paragraph, Luke gives us a little insight as to what one of those conversations looked like. Now I'm going to read a huge chunk of passages and then talk about it later. So hang in there. All right, starting from verse four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right, so what's going on here? So right after Jesus taught them about the significance of his death and resurrection, he assumed that his disciples, not called apostles, are excited to go out there and share what they just learned. So he tells them to wait. Jesus warns them that they need the Holy Spirit to do this special task of spreading this message, and the Holy Spirit will be given to them in a few days in Jerusalem. Then the disciples ask Jesus a rather weird question, which is, hey, when are you gonna restore Israel? Now, why would they ask this? Well, it's because they realize that they're in the presence of the Messiah, and there have been numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah will one day rebuild Israel to its fullest glory. So the apostles wanted Israel to be great again. Now, Jesus' response is very interesting. He tells them that when they receive the Holy Spirit, their mission is to bless not just Jerusalem, that's where they currently are, but also to Judea and Samaria, which is a huge chunk of Israel, and why stop there? He said to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus is telling them that their vision is too limited. Yeah, God is interested in rebuilding Israel. Yeah, sure. But he's also interested in rebuilding the entire world, which Israel is a part of. Then Luke does a hard cut to the next scene, which is filled with tons of meaning. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, if you come from a Jewish background, you read this as being extremely symbolic. Jesus being hidden by the clouds is a reference to the book of Exodus where being hidden in the clouds is a symbol of God's presence. And another reference to the book of Daniel where a mysterious character called the Son of Man sits at the right hand of God where he is recognized as the king. In other words, Luke is painting for us an image that says, here's proof, Jesus is the king of the universe. So this is how Luke begins the book of Acts. Now, why does he start it this way? Well, it's easy to miss the significance of what he wrote here if we don't understand the political context of the first century when Luke wrote this in the book of Acts. Now, around the year 30, a group of Jewish boys who followed this rabbi called Jesus witnessed his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, they were absolutely convinced that their rabbi was the Messiah. They believed this so much that they were willing to lay their lives on the line for it. And their proof was that their Messiah died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. But the claim that your God had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, well, at least on the surface level, was not that unique. In that time, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was ruled by a line of powerful men called Caesars. The first Caesar was a man named Julius Caesar, who died around 44 BC. A few days after his passing, a comet flew through the sky, and his son, Caesar Augustus, claimed that his father rose from the grave because a star has ascended into the heavens, which proved that he was God. So Augustus took that opportunity to call himself the son of God. Not only that, Augustus marched through the towns proclaiming his reign, and he called that message the gospel or euangelion in the Greek. Wherever he went, he made everyone confess that Caesar is Lord. That was his motto. And those who didn't agree with this, he had executed most likely by crucifixion. And on the other hand, the communities that did agree with him, well, they worshiped him and they became a group of people called the church or ecclesia. And as he made his rounds through his empire, which spanned from India to England, he proclaimed that he was here to bring peace, also known as the Pax Romana. He achieved this by using brute force, making everyone agree with the Roman Empire by destroying those who disagreed with them. So when Luke wrote the book of Acts, it was in a world where the common tale is that Caesar has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. I mean, Jesus' small group of followers didn't have a unique claim. Their belief about Jesus, at least on the surface level, didn't differentiate them from the rest. But as we all know, 2,000 years later, the Christians are still here and the Roman Empire is gone. So there must have been something else that made Jesus stand above the Romans. So the question is, what is it? And this is exactly what Luke is trying to tell us in the first chapter of Acts. See, these first followers of Jesus, they believed that Jesus' resurrection had huge implications. You see, they understood the world to be in desperate need of repair because it's broken and that God was going to fix everything. Now, in the first volume, the book of Luke, Jesus taught them that God wanted to partner with them to put the world back together. And when Jesus died on the cross, he showed them how Jesus wanted them to do this. It was through sacrificial love. These apostles, they passionately believed that the world was not going to be made better through swords, political coercion, or brute force. It had to be through love. But how would they get this message of love out into the world? So they came up with a very clever and creative ploy. They took some of Rome's propaganda and hijacked it. So instead of going from place to place proclaiming Rose Evangelion, the good news, they created their own version of the good news. Their good news was about serving the world, especially for those who got the short end of the stick of the empire. Jesus' good news was about bringing peace into the world through love, not power. 
They even hijacked the phrase Caesar is Lord and changed it to Jesus is Lord. There are historians that record stories of baby girls being tossed to the streets because the Roman Empire valued male over female. And it's also recorded that Christians picked up these girls from the streets and raised them as their own. Now, don't you think that these girls grew up to be women who testified about the gospel of Jesus? Don't you think that they instilled in their children when they became parents about the importance of loving other people unconditionally? See, this is how the Christians differentiated themselves from the Romans, by being Jesus to those around them. In the scene that we just read in the book of Acts, the apostle asked Jesus if he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. This is code for, hey, are you going to make Israel great again? And if you can understand the nuance of Jesus' response, he's basically saying this. He's saying, we aren't going to force the gospel on anyone. We aren't going to make Israel into an empire because if we do, we're no different than Rome. We're not like them. We are going to spread this message through love. Now notice in verse eight, Jesus tells his apostles that they are going to be witnesses. Now the word witness in the Greek is the word martus. This is where we get the word martyr. The implication here is that we will treat others with mindfulness and selflessness. This kingdom of Jesus is going to spread to the world through selfless love, which is the complete opposite strategy of the empire. And when people experience this kind of love, like somebody showed them dignity when the Romans tossed them to the side, or the fact that somebody shared a meal with them when the Romans ignored their basic needs, or somebody took the time to heal you when the Romans abandoned you, when they experienced this kind of love, they experienced and encountered Jesus. Now, these people who were cared by the apostles, they had to ask the question, well, who do you believe the real son of God is? Caesar or Jesus? Or do you believe that Caesar is Lord or that Jesus is Lord? Or another question they had to wrestle with is, which gospel do you believe is really good news? The fact that Rome will expand through war and coercion? or the fact that Jesus, who is love, is now king and his kingdom is spreading through love. Or the most practical and important question they had to answer was, whose ecclesia do you want to be a part of? The church of Caesar, where you're executed if you don't bow down to him? Or do you want to be part of the ecclesia, the church of Jesus, where we devote ourselves to loving one another? Now, it's really nice and all that we could look back at this story and say, wow, great job. You guys are heroes. But the big question is, how can we become people who love other people selflessly like these people in the first century did? I mean, how can we love others like Jesus loved us? This is why Luke pens down for us that Jesus told his apostles, stay in Jerusalem before you go out spreading the good news. You won't be able to do this unless you have the Holy Spirit. So in other words, wait until God gives you the Holy Spirit because the Spirit will give you the power to love. And any obstacle that gets in the way of loving others you will have the power to overcome it because of the Spirit. By the way, we all have obstacles to loving other people selflessly. For a lot of us, we have to be saved from these hindrances. We have to be saved from our sins, your past mistakes, your inability to be selfless, from your pride, from turning a blind eye to those who need love, from your addictions, from your desire for power. But as Paul, one of the first Christian leaders put it, he said that the more we realize how much we fall short of the glory of God, the more we experience Jesus' forgiveness and love. And when we experience that love of Jesus, we are refueled to love other people selflessly. So Luke begins the book of Acts by differentiating Christianity from the Romans. Because when Julius Caesar ascends into heaven, the Roman guards pull out their swords and conquers any communities that disagrees with them. But when Jesus resurrects and ascends to his throne, the world gets fixed by his followers with the aid of the Holy Spirit. They love unconditionally, people who are on the fringes are recognized, the hungry are fed, people become the best version of themselves, and the world gets fixed. 
And as random people start to experience this selfless love flourishing around them, they are beginning to experience Jesus. And then they recognize Jesus as Lord. So church, may you continue the legacy of Jesus' church. And may you become a participant in spreading God's kingdom, not by coercion, but by selfless love, so they could encounter Jesus in their everyday lives. And may you experience heaven on earth together. God bless.